Well, good morning. So, like we like we said uh, this morning, we're doing a little bit of a uh, detour. We will um, we'll, we'll get right back into the doctrine of the Holy Spirit next week. Uh, today, we're going to do a little bit of a side tour with a couple different circumstances, and we're going to be diving into the doctrine of the Trinity. So, again, a related subject, right? Uh, and I think it's going to help us as we work through more of Ferguson stuff. So we'll be really working out of a book by Michael Reeves called Delighting in the Trinity. And I, I, I would commend the book to you. I, I found the book helpful as it was, it was a way to approach the doctrine of the Trinity, but a way in which to draw near in communion with God, right? So it's informed doctrinally, but it was also very experiential in how we view God and how we commune with him and how we draw near to him. So I would definitely commend it to you. So from, from a, um, uh, I know uh, none of you have notes, so it makes that a little bit more challenging. But really, I think what we're going to focus on, um, if you, if you want to think of this, we're, we're going to focus on God as triune and, and thinking about that uh, thinking of his triunity, or you know, we use the term trinity, instead of immediately thinking of God as ruler or God as creator, uh, or and we'll, we'll kind of explore that as um, uh, Reeves brings out in his book related to the early church controversy with Arius and Athanasius. So we'll get into some details there, and then really we're going to explore because it that has implications. Um, when we then think about, well, then how should we think about God, right? If we don't just immediately think of him as um, uh, 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 Lord or ruler or creator. Um, and really, we'll approach that, that God is first and foremost uh, Father, Son, and Spirit. So it is three relations, and that's how God reveals himself. So we'll we'll expand on that, and then... Uh, we'll really touch on the, the aspects of Father um, or uh, Son and Holy Spirit, the, the three persons. And then we'll end with um, uh, that it is not modalism or modalism as, as Reeves calls it. So, um, so if you want to think of it this way, and, and, and I found this helpful... When we think about God, we should think about God as he has been revealed. So when we think of Jesus in John 14, 6, he says, No one can come to the Father but through me. And Jesus, the way that he reveals his identity is in relation to the Father. And then how the Father and Son then relate to the Holy Spirit. So I think from a main point, um, it, it will all come back to those relationships that God expresses who he is uh, via these personal, eternal relations within himself, within this one God, one divine essence. So let's, so let's start here. So God as triune and not first or foremost as creator. And, and Reeves brings out this idea 
that if we if we if we if we work out that we're created beings and that we work back to well then God is creator right he is the uncaused cause and while, while that can be while um, uh, there are aspects of that that can be helpful and inform what we believe but he cautions us not to let that take the place of primacy with who God is that when we think of who God is it is in relation uh, 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 these uh, particular uh, eternal relations. So, to quote Reeves, when he talks about, so he talks about two paths, right? So the first path is the path of trying to work out God by our own brain power. And I'll, I'll just read a quote. I look around at the world and sense it must have all come from somewhere. Someone or something caused it to be and that someone I will call God. God, then, is the one who brings everything else into existence, but who is not himself brought into being by anything. He is the uncaused cause. That is who he is. God is essentially the creator, the one in charge. So, but that's not the direction that Reeves looks to take us. If we essentially think of God's identity as creator, this will appear to be very, quote-unquote, reasonable and unobjectionable, but there are unintended consequences that impact our understanding of Christianity. So, he brings out a couple of dangers, let me, let me, and let me list them for you. So the first danger that he lists is this. First of all, if God's very identity is to be the creator, the ruler, then he needs a creation to rule in order to be who he is. For all his cosmic power then, this God turns out to, pitifully, to be pitifully weak. He needs us. He needs creation. Secondly, the problems don't stop there, though. If God's very identity is to be the ruler, what kind of salvation can he offer me, if he's even prepared to offer such a thing? If God is the ruler, and the problem is that I have broken the rules, the only salvation he can offer is to forgive me and treat me as if I had kept the rules. And I want to pause there for a second, because... What I just said can almost be read as though there's something wrong with, um, with legal forgiveness, right? Like, that is one of the highlights of the Christian experience, right? God's legal act of forgiveness, of acquittal, of giving or imputing or accounting us righteous in Christ, right? That's like a highlight of the Christian life. But here he's saying that this is almost on a downside. And, and, and so the way in which we should understand that or, or to read it in its proper sense is that it is not the fullness of the Christian gospel. And what I, what, what I mean by this and what Reeves means by this is that Christianity is not simply forgiveness, right? Like 
you broke the law, now you've been forgiven of such law-breaking, and now you're considered a law-abiding citizen, right? It's, it's not to downplay, that's definitely true. But we then lose out and miss out on that familial language of us becoming children of God, right? That we are truly sons and daughters of God. But how is that then possible if we don't think of God in these personal father, son, and spirit, right, identities or persons? And that is, that's one of the dangers if we just think of God in this more abstract, right, unoriginated cause of all causes. Now, again, it, it's not to say that that doesn't have its helpful place, but it should not drive primacy into the identity or who we think of when we think of God. Yeah, and we're going to get to a case in point here, like I said, with Arius and Athanasius that I found really illuminating, right? Because, and this is, this is always helpful. Are we the first people to think through these doctrines? No, right? Praise the Lord. We have 2,000 years, roughly, of Christian reflection on, on these doctrines. And we get to benefit tremendously from that. So let me give a little more detail in regards to, to the first two dangers. Reeves says, But if that is how God is, my relationship with him can be little better than my relationship with any traffic cop. Meaning no offense to any readers in the police force. Even if, he, uh, even if with the law broken and he let you off the hook, you would have gratitude, uh, but not love. And so it is with the divine policeman. If salvation simply means him letting me off and counting me as a law-abiding citizen, then gratitude, not love, is all I have. In other, uh, in other words, I can never really love the God who is essentially just the ruler. And that, ironically, means I can never keep the greatest command to love the Lord my God. Now, he might go a little far there, right, that there's, that there's no love, right, because I do think there's, there's definitely that sense, but it does not take the place in which adoption, right, being a son or daughter of God, right, brings out. It doesn't have the same force. So I, so I still think those, 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 those cautions that he provides are helpful. But instead, we should consider the second path, right? So the first path is we think of God as this unoriginated cause of all causes, right? Uh, and, and really the God of our, of our brain power, right? Kind of, kind of working backwards. The second path is the lamp-lit path, the one that is evenly paved and revealed by Jesus Christ, God's Son. This path ends in a different place with a different kind of... Of God. Jesus revealed this God as first and foremost one in which he as son relates to as father. That is who God has revealed himself to be. Right? And so uh, just turn with me in your Bibles. It's a familiar text. Right? John 14, 6. 
And then once we go there, we're actually going to spend a little bit of time in John. And, and really, if, if, if I can, um, as we're turning to John 14, hopefully this just like whets the appetite. Because the, the way that we've got Sunday school kind of planned is we're going to go, I think, through September working through the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, right? And just the stuff that Ferguson has prepared for us is truly a feast. But then we're going to piggyback off of that and then go and think about um, the nature, attributes, and decree of God, right? And so we're going to think about his attributes. We're going to think about God as Trinity. And so really, just this is like just like whetting the appetite, right, for really good things to come. So, so going back to our lesson. So John 14, 6. If we can have uh, uh, someone read John 14, 6 once you get there. Perfect. Right? So instead, how is Jesus addressing God? He's addressing God as Father, right? And no one can come to the Father except through Christ. But then this, this leads us to this question, right? And I, and, I, and I really like it, right? So Reeves kind of says, all right, so th- this is the right path, right? And we're going to, and really like the rest of the chapter kind of explores what, what does that look like, right? What is this path look like and he starts with a question right because both paths have to answer this question what was God doing before creation what was God doing before creation and that first path that path that we talked about the God of our own brain power so to speak this is an impossible question Because we don't know, right? The only thing we know is that God is uncreated, right? When we think of God primarily, or his identity as creator. But instead, with this second path, the path of the eternal Son of God, he does have an answer. And it is this. The Father loving his Son through the Spirit. This is what was happening before creation. Turn with me. Just one chapter over in the book of John. And, and really, there's, um, there's so much that's helpful. So they, they, uh, they really um, they talk about the, the upper room discourse in, in the book of John. right? And it really starts in um, uh, uh, the, the end of John... Uh, 13, where um, uh, they're together, but then in chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17, what Jesus uh, reveals truly is beautiful, right? As, As we see the persons of the Trinity in relation to one another, not just as they exist and as they're revealed in history, Right? The Father sending the Son, the Son becoming incarnate, right? And then the Father and Son sending the Spirit, right, in the day of Pentecost. But in fact, it, it reveals much more because it reveals these eternal relations before creation. And, we'll, and we're going to talk more about that. So, um, so we're going to the text. John 17. Uh, verse 24. If I can 
just have whoever gets there, you want to just go ahead and read John 17, 24. Isn't that a beautiful text, right? Just pause and reflect on this with me. So Jesus, talking to his Father, talking about the elect, those whom the Father gave to the Son, may be with Jesus where uh, where he is, to see his glory, the glory that the Father has given him, why? Why? Because the Father has loved the Son before the foundation of the world. So how should we think of God? Right? We should think of God in terms of the eternal relations of Father, Son, and Spirit. And it helps us to then think of correctly, right, What was God doing before creation? He was loving Himself, right? As it says in John 17, 24. So, and this is a really cool thing that Reeves does in his book. He would just like do like, hey, you know, like, we're going to do like a little half page section like from church history. Like, why is this important? And he would bring out like different different characters, right? Kind of in the lineup. And uh, he brings out one that I said we bring up and that is Arius and Athanasius. Now, I'm guessing some of us are familiar at least a little bit with Arius and Athanasius. We go back, you know, 1,700 years, right, in the, in the 300s, 400s, and, and that time period. And working through the issue of who the Son is in relationship to the Father. Is the Son truly God? And Reeves points this out, and this was, was super fascinating. So with Arius, and just to be clear, Arius was on the wrong side of history, right? Even though for, for much of his life, he had much political power, right? He had, he had the ear of the emperor, right? Um, uh, and so at, uh, uh, like you, you, you read the stories, and, and Athanasius, right, would constantly keep being expelled, from the empire, or be in hiding, right, and then come back. All, all related to this, right? Well, Arius, his starting point, or basic definition, is that God is the cause of everything, and should be primarily thought of as uncaused or unoriginated, right? So, like, God is this abstract, right, um, uncaused being. And that's how we first and foremost think about God. And then that had implications for the Son because then the Son was not Son from eternity, right? Because the Father was not Father from eternity. But it was in fact a Father and Son relationship in a point in history, right? So there's implications for how we think of God who He is. Right? Because to Arius, the Son was not always Son. Right? But became Son. 
as a created being. Arius' conclusion was, Jesus cannot be God because he is a son and therefore must have received his being from the Father. Notice that. The, the, the conclusion that he makes, so if Jesus is a son, then that means his being must have come from the Father. And so to him that implied a time and point in history, which means Jesus, right, is a created person and not fully God. Now there's a whole bunch of other stuff that happens with Arius and Athanasius. There's really important Greek terms, right? Um, but we're not going to go into those now. But needless to say, this it's very important in how we think of God, who he is. Uh, now, now this is interesting. I, I really like this, what, what Reeves said here. Athanasius simply boggled at Arius's presumption. How could he possibly know what God is like other than as he has revealed himself? Right? Notice that. Boggled by the presumption. Right? The primacy of revelation. It is, he said, more pious and more accurate to signify God from the Son and call him Father than to name him from his works only and call him unoriginate or unoriginated. That different starting point and basic understanding of God would mean that the gospel Athanasius preached simply felt and tasted very different from the one preached by Arius. Arius would have to pray to, quote-unquote, unoriginated. But would, quote-unquote, unoriginate listen? Athanasius could pray, Our Father. With the, quote-unquote, unoriginate, we are left scrambling for a dictionary and philosophy uh, uh, literature. With a father, things are familial, family-like. And if God is a father then he must be relational and life-giving, and that is the sort of God we could love. So then, when we think then, well, let me, let me ask this. So does anyone have any questions or comments? If your brain hurts, that's okay. Because that's how mine feels every time I think about the Trinity. Yeah, it's funny. It's uh, when, when you approach the Trinity, right, and there's, um, there is so much history, right? You, you almost get scared, right? Because you're like, I need to make sure I've got all the guardrails up, you know? Because there, you want to think of God correctly. And, and one of the things that I like about Reeves that he brings out, if we think about the father as a father from eternity and the son as a son from eternity and the spirit as the spirit from eternity we're going to be okay, right? And, and it's like, that just like helps to simplify it. Now again, doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to like, you know, ex expound and explain and detail some of these things. But it, 
if, if we can keep those things together and in mind, it will keep the right guardrails up and yet help us to approach God as he truly is. So with that, what I want to do is just take a couple minutes and just look at some of these texts when we think of um, uh, God, um, uh, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And Yeah, 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 go ahead. Yes, correct. Um, and I think that's still good to use that argument. That, correct. That everything that has existed made it cause the Yes. And God is that cause. You're just saying we don't primarily think of God in this Yes. But it can still be a whole form. Yes. Correct. That, that, we, that we keep, you know, what's said about natural theology in its place, right? And the primacy of revelation. Right, and what revelation provides. And I think what he was showing with Arius is that if, if we misplace uh, the, that priority, this is what can happen, where we're then working out logical deductions, right? and now it makes us uncomfortable to say biblical things. Right? So I think, I think, so yes, to your point, the answer, yeah, you're, you're, you're on the right track. Because it's not to downplay that there is there is a benefit or help. It's just keeping that in check in its proper position in regards to what is what is greater or superior in regards to revelation. And, and I guess along with that, like would the cosmological argument also technically just prove like a god in general? Like it could be like the Muslim god or Unitarian god. So you need more. Yes. Yes. So uh, correct. Yeah, because it's, it's it's left more broadly. Now again, I know. Classical apologists, they kind of, you know, try to tackle that by using multiple arguments or thoughts. But yeah, I, th- I think that can be one of the, thi- um, one of the cautions not to use that uh, alone. Yeah. But not to say that it can't be helpful. Yeah. Like yep. helpful, yeah. Correct. But yeah. Just like yes. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. That, that, that's helpful. All right. So then... Um, Let's see here, because I only want to just touch on a couple of texts. Um, turn with me to Isaiah 63. Just look at this one, right? And then, and then we'll go to John. So, Actually, you know what? No, that's all right. Let's just go to John. We'll just stay in John for time's sake. Sorry. Let's go to John. And we've already we've already looked at you know one text or, or a couple different texts, but we'll just do one more. Uh, well, we'll do, we'll do two. So uh, let, let's look at um, uh, John twenty and let's look at verse uh, seventeen. Um, whoever, whoever gets there, just go ahead and read it out. John twenty verse seventeen. Okay, excellent. Yeah, again, just bringing out right the, the, this person of the Trinity, um, or if, I'll, I'll just even read from First Corinthians eight six. Um, this is from the Nasby. 
Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Right? So we see a difference there in prepositions, right? With the Father we exist for him, and then with the Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul says here, we exist through him. Even though each person of the Trinity is worthy of the same honor and glory and worship. So then, we have thought of, right, God as Father. And I just want to read a quote here. It was a profound observation uh, this, this is from Reeves. For it is only when we see that God rules his creation as a kind and loving father that we will be moved to delight in his providence. We might acknowledge that the rule of some heavenly policeman was just, but we could never take delight in his regime as we can delight in the tender care of a father. And I thought that was really helpful, right? You think of um, the text when Jesus talks about, um, what was it, in Matthew 6, where he's talking about uh, not, not to worry, not to have these anxieties in your heart, right? But what does he say um, in verse 32 in uh, Matthew 6? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your what? Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all, right? It is this right view of Father and His kind providence that rightly draws us to worship, right? And to have the right view in times especially of testing or trials and, and, th- and things of this nature. So, so now what does it mean that God is a Father, right? That Reeves asks. He says, the father is called father because he is a father, right? That's like super illuminating, but also at the same time, like the depths of that, we truly won't know, right? Because what we say next um, really just cautions us just to speak correctly, right? Um, Because he's a father because he begets a son, But this doesn't happen in time or history, right? He's a father from all eternity, just as the son is a begotten son, right? Just like, you know, you you, you birth a child, right? But he's been eternally begotten. There was no beginning, right? That, in one sense, is really hard for us as time-bound creatures, right, to make sense of, right? So it's sometimes just helpful where it's like, okay, that's it, right? And that's about as much as, uh, as, 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 I, as I understand, right? That he is the eternally begotten son. So, so Reeve, Reeve says this, And a father is a person who gives life, who begets children. Now that insight is like a stick of dynamite in all our thoughts about God. For if before all things God was eternally a father, then this God is inherently outgoing, life-giving God. 
He did not give life for the first time when he decided to create from eternity. He has been life-giving. Turn with me real quick. Turn with me to 1 John. In 1 John 4, and um, let's read verses 7 through 9. So whoever gets there, if you can read verses 7 through 9. Reeves asked this question. Have you ever known someone so magnetically kind and gracious, so warm and generous of spirit, that just a little time spent with them affects how you think, feel, and behave? Someone whose very presence makes you better, even if for only a little while when you are with them. I know people like that, and they seem to be little pictures of how God is according to John. This God, he says, is love in such a profound and potent way that you simply cannot know him without yourself becoming loving. And he comments on verse 9. The God who is love is the Father who sends his Son. To be the Father, then, means to love, to give out life, to beget the Son. Before anything else, for all eternity, this God was loving, giving life to, and delighting in His Son. And I want to just take that and and pause for a moment. And this is something that I I said earlier, but I think this is a helpful point in which to to bring this out. The works that God does in in relationship to each person of the Trinity, right? Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father sending the Son to become flesh, to die for us, to be raised. The Spirit to be sent from the Father and the Son, right? Um, These reflect inner Trinitarian relationships that have existed from all eternity. So the Trinity does what it does in creation, in providence, in recreation, right? As expressions of how they relate to one another in themselves before creation. And, and I think, I think that, is, that is helpful, right? They do what they do um, because of who they are as they relate to one another. Right, and, and so, um, so maybe that's like a little abstract. Think about it this way. It is the Father who sends the Son, right? It's not the Son who sends the Father. In the same way that it's the Father who begets the Son and not the Son who begets 
the Father, right? So we can see some of these relationships, right? In the same way that the Father begets the Son, it's the Father who sends the Son, right? When we, when we think of these relationships. So then, and I'll, um, I, w- I want to uh, read with this quote because I thought this was just a, a helpful picture. And you know what? Um, we're actually going to get to read this quote from Gregory of Nyssa um, that's super, super helpful when we think about the eternal relations of father and son, right? And how, like, our minds can be blown, right? Because we think of that in, in terms of time and, the, and those kind of things. So let, let me read this, this quote, and then, then we'll go to that. Seeing this, many theologians have liked to compare the father to a fountain, ever bursting out with life and love. And just as a fountain, to be a fountain must pour forth water, so the Father, to be Father, must give out life. That is who he is. That is his most fundamental identity. Thus, love is not something the Father has, merely one of his many moods. Rather, he is love. He could not not love. If he did not love, he would not be Father. Right, and so he makes this connection, right, a fountain, right, is a fountain because it's pouring out water, right? And so it's those two, when they are working together, where they both reveal each other, right? You have the water coming from the fountain and the fountain that's pouring, and they both reflect that relationship and identity. So then, what I want to do is I want us just to take, I don't think we'll have enough time to hit on the Spirit, but I do want us to cover the Son, even though the, the Spirit was really illuminating uh, on, on, on this particular section. So in relationship, then, so we've thought about God as Father, right? Uh, in regards uh, to that, the first person of the Trinity. But now let us consider God, the Son, the eternally begotten Son, right? And so remember, in the same way that the Father has been Father from eternity, so the Son has been Son from eternity. And it cannot be any other way. Turn with me, uh, so... Uh, we, we could look at John 17 again, but for time's sake, turn with me to Colossians. And while you're turning to Colossians, we just remember John 17, 24, where he talked about uh, at the end, for you, Father, loved me, that is the Son, before the foundation of the world. The Father loves the Son from eternity. So in Colossians 1, let's read verses 16 and 17. And if we can, whoever gets there, if you'll just read verses 16 and 17 of Colossians 1. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Yes. 
So just a um, uh, a glorious thought about here is Jesus who is uh, um, uh, or he, here is God the Son from before creation through whom all things both in heaven and on earth visible and invisible are created through him and for him right so again Jesus was not some exalted person simply at resurrection right as though he was a person now he's resurrected to divine status right but he was always from eternity in this exalted relationship with Father and Spirit, right, from eternity past. And as such, is worthy of worship and praise that all things are made for him. And to quote Reeves, he says, The Father, then, is the Father of the Eternal Son, and he finds his very identity, his fatherhood, and loving and giving out his life and being to the Son. And this is important for us to remember, right? As long as we keep these straight, in the same way that the Father is Father from eternity, so it will help keep the right guardrails for us to view the Son as eternally the Son from all eternity. That the Father has eternally begotten the Son. It was never a point in time, right? There was never a point in time where the Father was without the Son, or the Son was without the Father. But they have always existed in this relationship. And I want to just read this quote. So I, I told you um, uh, to help, uh, uh, this, this quote from, from Gregory of Nyssa to help show the unity of this relationship. So th it's a comment um, of his from Hebrews 1.3. And it says this, that the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. As the light from the lamp is of the nature of that which sheds the brightness and is united with it, for as soon as the lamp appears, the light that comes from it shines out simultaneously. So in this place, the Apostle would have us consider both that the Son is of the Father and that the Father is never without the Son. For it is impossible that glory should be without radiance, as it is impossible that the lamp should be without brightness. And that to me was helpful, right? When we think of these, these, uh, this imagery, it helps to draw this essential unity of, of these things working together in the same way that, um, uh, that it is only in union that they have correct expression, like a light with its lamp, right? Functions as, it's, as, as a lamp when there's light effulging, right? And it is together or simultaneously. So, so far, 
Does anyone have any questions or comments or thoughts? Because I know this is, um, again, like I said, when we approach the Trinity, for me, uh, it's, uh, it hurts, right? Like this is like, it takes a lot of like, you know, brain juices. Thinking about how the Son has always been there, the Father has always been there, unless the Spirit has always been there. What would you say that says to the nature of given that there's the Father and the Son, because what we typically think of, the Son comes from the Father, so there's a, there's a generational sort of... Yes. I mean, and obviously that's, that's here with mankind, and obviously that's not the picture that's being painted here with the Trinity, but the use of that language, what would you say that, that says about their relationship, given everything that you said about you know, the eternal existence of both? Yes, yeah. Nope, super helpful, super helpful, uh, and and a really good question. So, um, so, so similar to what like Reeves has said in regards to um, uh, we have these three relations, right? And the father is the one who begets the son, which then um, communicates uh, love and um, uh, uh, things uh, of, of this nature. So it's appropriate to think of this one divine essence and um, uh, one person, the Father, as he is in relationship to the Son and to the Spirit, right? And, but it has those, those associations with it, right? Like um, uh, love and life-giving and, 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 think, and things of that nature, right? But we would not say uh, or... Um, that the Son is somehow subordinate to the Father because the Son is Son and the Father is Father, right? And um, uh, it is uh, correct for us to think of these relations, right, as Father and Son, but not, um, but, but not to, I don't know, that, that extent, if, if that makes sense. Like those titles, Father and Son, should not somehow in our minds be uh, override Correct. Correct. Yes. Yeah. No, excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Any other questions or, or, or thoughts or comments? Yeah. Yes. 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 Yeah, and it's and it's proper place. Yeah, and truly the role that revelation has. Yeah, as that ultimate authority. Yeah. No. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Awesome. Let me just bring out. One aspect, really, uh, in, in relation to the Father and Son, that I that I that I think is illuminating, and then, and then we'll close. That, that that Reeves brings out. So one of the things that he says is 
the emphasis that we find in Scripture between the Father and Son is not so much that the Son loves the Father, though there are Scriptures that inform us that the Son loves the Father, right? But what is the emphasis in Scripture? The emphasis in Scripture is the Father is the one who loves the Son, right? And the Son is the Beloved, right? And so there's this this aspect that is that is brought out between to, to Jeremy's question about the father and son in regards to emphasis that the father is the is the one who loves and the son right in relation to the father is the beloved now again it does not mean that the son does not love the father right because it, um, when we think about the one divine essence right all three persons of the trinity are equally worthy of worship, honor, and adoration. But we we don't want to miss this emphasis that we do see in Scripture. And then, um, again, we, we don't have time, and hopefully we'll get to cover this um, at some point with our Holy Spirit study that we're working through. But then thinking about this aspect of the Holy Spirit as the loving communion between the Father and the Son, right? Not, not as this impersonal force, but as a person um, uh, e- expressing such love. So again, we won't have time to go into that, um, uh, but I do think that is definitely something for us to get to circle back with. If we don't get to do it with this Holy Spirit study, then hopefully with the... Uh, um, uh, deity and decree study that we'll do at the at, at the end of the end of the year. So let's go ahead and pray, and we'll thank the Lord for our time and, and head in for corporate worship. Lord God, we worship you and thank you that in this time we can be renewed and strengthened, have our mind sharpened in regards to these correct categories, these guardrails that help direct our love and our affection for you as. Father, Son, and Spirit. And we do pray even now that you would strengthen us as we go to worship you as a corporate people to your praise through the Spirit. Be honored in Jesus' name. Amen.